This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or on a streaming service and connect and compare it to older films, sometimes by the same filmmaker or in the same genre. Sometimes we give love to the work of an actor or a screenwriter or nebulous industry figure to <laughs> borrow a term from uh, Mr. Norm Wilner. Uh, my name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and critic, host of the Knox office on CBC Information Morning. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris. It can be found at halifaxbloggers.ca. And I'm a freelancer and film enthusiast here in Halifax. My name is Stephen Cook. And on today's Lends Me Your Ears, we are diving deep into the lurid pool of erotic thrillers. Uh, available now on the Criterion Channel and other places. We're going to take a look at some of these films and let you know whether or not they're worth seeing and and have a few chuckles along the way. That's coming up on this episode of Lends Me Your Ears. And welcome to the first segment of Lends Me Your Ears. We're looking at erotic thrillers, kind of inspired by a new selection of these uh, lurid and uh, thrilling and sometimes not so thrilling titles uh, being hosted on the uh, Criterion channel. They're they're kind of uh, playing a little bit outside of their usual pool of classy art films and um, and foreign classics. They're they're di- dipping into the the the, the cheesier and and sometimes. Uh, more uh, exploitative realm of things with this round of films that they've got uh, hosted on the channel this month. And it's always a treat every month to see what one of their featured uh, programs is going to be or featured sort of film programming uh, channels, if you will. And uh, I, was, I was thrilled to see erotic thrillers, many of which I'd already seen, but a few that I had not. And uh, and it was great to dip into those and, uh, and also some other titles that are available, uh, both new and from years gone by. Yeah, I was also thrilled to see it, though. I was slightly bummed, Stephen, that uh, some of the the films that are available on the American Criterion Channel, and they're advertising the full slate of films, uh, aren't available here in Canada. Uh, For instance, Jade, which, you know, okay, so Jade is not considered a great example of the genre. I might still would have liked to have checked it out after well, many years. It is a years. William Friedkin film. Uh, yeah. It's got a great car chase. Yeah. That's also kind of a cliche. Like it goes through, it goes through Chinatown and yeah, there's a parade with a giant dragon head <laughs> dancer thing happening as there always is anytime anyone goes anywhere near Chinatown. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and also uh, bound, which is from the Wachowskis, uh, their first film, I would have liked to revisit that. Uh, But, you know, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about those another time. Uh, You know, I find that erotic thrillers are very weird sort of niche subgenre. When we were coming of age, I guess, as film fans, as you know, in, in the, late 80s early 90s they were very popular like they every you know couple of weeks there was a new one in cinemas um and a lot of those aren't entirely watchable right now I mean, we've no when we talked about paul verhoeven we talked a little <laughs> bit about basic instinct and it's i'm just sorry it's awful uh fatal attraction by adrian line is not much better though we will be talking shortly about one of his more recent films uh, after he had a long break and and he's back and making movies I do have a soft spot for nine and a half weeks, for example, uh, and some of the other titles in this sort of trashy and semi-trashy catalog I, I have time for. Some of that's nostalgia, I guess, a little bit, but, you know, in, in ways that I appreciate how cinema can be provocative, and some of this really is. And also the fact that, you know, when when they're not, you know, really terrible, sometimes these films are sexy and are, are asking questions of the audience and telling stories in a way that we don't see as much these days because let's face it Hollywood in on the broad is a lot more sexless now than it, it's probably ever been um uh, you know so so there are questions about about that and there are things to talk about regarding that but anyway further to the criterion list it also has one of the best erotic thrillers ever and that's body heat yes as well as the last seduction i think they're both films we've talked about here on this podcast definitely the gold standard for this uh Subgenre, yeah, definitely, definitely, and anyway, separate from the Criterion Channel, we've we've also sought out a few others, and um, 
the first one I think to talk about is the newest film in our list, and it's not brand new, so we are stretching the bounds of our mandate a little bit here on Lens Mirrors, but it it came out last year. It's new enough. It's new enough. It's newish. Uh, and that's Deep Water, directed by Adrian Lyne. And again, it's his first film, I think, in almost 20 years, and uh, written by Zach Helm and Sam Levinson, based on a story by Patricia Highsmith. Of course, you know, Highsmith is someone else who's come up a lot in our podcast because we do enjoy a good thriller. And many of her stories have been adapted uh, for thrillers uh, over the years. Uh, Deep Water is, I mean, there's a few things I want to say right off the top about this movie. Grace Jenkins is a young actor who plays Trixie, six or seven-year-old daughter of the characters here, the leads, Anna Darmus and Ben Affleck. She's a full-on bandit in how she steals scenes. The first act of this film, if it had simply been her singing along to Leo Sayer in the back of the car, (laughs) I would have given it my highest rating. Uh, And the second, again, as I mentioned, line is a director of indelible 80s entertainments, Flashdance and Nine Half Weeks, which I mentioned. Also, Jacob's Ladder, which is a terrific horror movie, if people haven't seen that. And the aforementioned Fatal Attraction. He has not lost a step in the style department. Also, Foxes with Jodie Foster. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is a terrific film. That's his uh, his first feature. And... uh, well, we're seeking out. Sometimes it goes in and out of copyright due to the music rights, but uh, if you can find a copy of it, well, we're seeing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, this film has a uh, deep water has all the slippery, sleazy, perfectly framed and lit vibes of his best work. I would say it isn't. I mean, it is and isn't an erotic thriller. It's more. It's just as much a portrait of a messed up marriage and the shadow of violence inside it. Um, now, of course, you know. We it's it's I think a lot of attention got paid to it when it came out because Affleck and Armas in real life away from the cinema or away from the screening service had been having a romance. And so that was getting some attention at the time. And so this was the product. Of course, it's a sexy film. So, I mean, honestly, I was just happy to see a sexy movie that took itself somewhat seriously, uh, even though so much of it is actually ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's maybe a little more Hitchcockian due to the Highsmith source material than than some of these films. I mean, that's a, that's a an adjective that gets thrown around a lot uh, in this particular genre because Hitchcock uh, liked to play with the, the boundaries of what was permissible in uh, in cinema in the in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And then finally, he, he can kind of be a little more explicit in Frenzy with kind of mixed results. It's kind of like, well, maybe he was a little bit better with the restrictions than mm-hmm. when, when they were lifted a little bit. I mean, I like Frenzy, but it's certainly not uh, top shelf uh, Hitchcock. And here, somebody who's a little more experienced with working that kind of material into a movie can can do some fun things with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'll talk, I guess, a little bit about the plot. You can, you can maybe when we get to the other version of yes. this film, you can go into that one, sure. Stephen. But uh, in the new version of this, of Deep Water, Vic Van Allen, played by Affleck, he's independently wealthy. He designs chips for drone warfare and retired to a huge house in some Louisiana small town, though it's clearly New Orleans, with his much younger wife, Melinda, played by Darmus, and daughter, as we mentioned, Trixie. They have a pretty great life. They go to or host a lot of parties with friends. I mean, at least some of whom are notably in May-September relationships, uh, like the couple played by Kristen Connolly and Tracy Letts. Uh, what's a little weird is that Vic likes to cultivate snails, but not for eating. It's a little unclear why he does this as a visual metaphor. It's not the most exciting I can think of, but, uh, but anyway, again, like I mentioned, there is a French film. We'll be talking about it uh, shortly, which uh, is an earlier version of this same story, an earlier adaptation where the snails kind of feel more like they are. I don't know. They make more sense. Yes. The uh, escargot. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so that's not the only thing that's strange. Melinda is clearly having flings with a number of young men in the town, parading them in front of her husband, who seems pretty good at sublimating his jealous anger. That is, until he isn't. Uh, his pals, including the unfortunately underutilized Lil Rel Howery and Rachel Blanchard, they try to say something to him about how she behaves, but he's kind of on his own trip and he seems fine with it. Uh, he says he refuses to govern her behavior while he clearly is suffering. So um, at first, the tension here is around whether he's been actually doing something, killing her lovers. And then later on, when certain things are revealed, how things could possibly resolve between them without one of them killing the other. 
it doesn't always make sense. In fact, as we go along, I think it makes less and less of it. Uh, Vic does things that can't really be explained. There's something to do with a wallet later on that's a little baffling. And her motivations are a bit of a mystery, too. Is she simply a nymphomaniac or is she just looking to get a reaction from her husband? I mean, he is like a stone here. He's just very stony. More to the point, how do they even get to this place in their relationship? Was she always like this or is her flagrant enthusiasm for other dudes something that's new? Was he always so distant and buttoned down? you know, being cool with her infidelity or is he, you know, is he just kind of Affleck plays it in such a way that it's, it's a little hard to tell what's actually going on with him. A lot of questions remain even as the credits rolled, but mostly I wasn't that bothered. And that's because I thought deep water is very entertaining. It's, it's really the kind of movie Adrian line has always made, whether good or bad or so bad, it's good. He knows how to keep us involved and he's done it again with this one. It, It goes to places that are unpredictable because it doesn't make sense. And that's fine if the journey is, I mean, if we have a best time in the journey, which we absolutely do, I think. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, Line is more interested in kind of surfaces and characters uh, more so than, say, uh, plot manipulation and, and character motivation that that uh, that he's interested in seeing them, you know, putting them through interesting paces on, on kind of a chessboard sort of thing. And and this uh, this film is a good example. Of that. I mean, this is, as you said, it's his first film in uh, 20 years, which is amazing. His last film was, I think, Unfaithful in mm. 2002 with Richard Gere. And I think Diane Lane, I think, was... Oh, it's definitely Diane Lane. I can't remember if Gear is in it. Maybe he is. And, it's been a uh, while. <laughs> you know, so he, he it's it's he, clearly he's just putting on a pair of comfortable shoes here. Like he's definitely in his element with this material and knows how to manipulate uh, the audience. I feel like did he work he must have worked in commercials or something. Oh, absolutely. And then, yeah. And then uh so he, he you know, he he's he's got that whole thing about sort of knowing psychologically how to you know, work his audience, even if uh, what's happening on screen doesn't always make the most sense. And and I, f- I feel it just comes down to the characters and the charisma of the two stars that are playing them. And also a great, some, the great supporting cast, uh, you know, when they're, when they're telling uh, Affleck that he needs to rein his wife in and, 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 and he actually, he seems sort of progressive and, but of course we know he's a psychopath <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and just uh, trying to balance his trying to be cool on the externally while, there's this sea of raging uh, anger and ire inside of him. It is pretty fascinating. I, f- I find that it's he's just so well picked here to to play that fine line between charming and creepy. Yeah, you know, because because sometimes you, you see movies with characters like that and they kind of switch on a dime, and you're kind of like, oh, where'd that come from? And, and here, because you always get the sense that it's lurking beneath the surface, and 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 Affleck kind of brings some some gravity to uh, to that portrayal. Yeah, I think there's something to be talked about in terms of Affleck's. I guess, cinematic presence because, you know, he seems so uncomfortable as Batman. It's much better to see him in a character like this. It feels akin to his character from Gone Girl, Nick Dunn. Yes, very where familiar. Where, you know, I think Affleck's just not entirely likable as a screen presence, and I don't think he ever has been. So in a role where he can lean into that slight douchebaggery, I think it really <laughs> works. You know, he's plausible. And uh, I think this is a really good part for him. And also full marks to Anna Darmus, who has become a star in recent years, thanks to a variety of roles. And of course, now is an Oscar nominee for playing Marilyn Monroe in, in Blonde, which is a film I, I know a lot of people had some trouble with. I definitely did. But she is super magnetic. And then some. I think, you know, it's great to see her and refreshing to see her character as, you know, she's unapologetically horny. And it's just. It's great to see someone, a, a woman, you know, a female in Hollywood in a movie just kind of go there. And uh, and that's, I thought I thought that was a big part of her charm and presence on screen. Yeah, yeah. she's, it's great here because she keeps us on our toes through the whole film. I mean, Affleck is, uh, you know, he's being the one who's kind of carrying out evil deeds. He kind of is the center of attention. But Anna de Armas keeps us guessing, you know, are they partners in crime? Does she, or is she living in denial? Does she suspect, or does she not simply not care? We'll get to the the original film in a moment, but uh, it's it's certainly interesting how the dynamic is different between husband and wife in this film compared to the uh, the French film. And I I love the fact that they they're playing around with without changing anything a whole lot. They change the dynamic between husband and wife in a way that works for these characters and for these actors. And and she's terrific. Uh, you know, she gets to show a real range of emotion against this kind of stony cliff face. <laughs> <Ben> <laughs> Alex, you know, and finally, when he does actually 
have an outburst of anger towards her and, and she says finally some emotion and uh you know that that moment just seems to ring so incredibly true and it's 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 a great moment for her yeah absolutely so yeah let's move on to that other film but before oh, before we do though i want to say anyone who happens to watch deep water should check out stay through the credits because there's a yes. during credit sting one of the high, highlights of the whole movie i would have to say Again, it, it utilizes the the lovely uh, scene-stealing qualities of Grace Jenkins, the, the girl who plays the daughter. It's awesome. Yes. And also full marks to uh, Tracy Letts, who's a, you know, a well-known, he's, he's, he's probably best known for stage work, but he's been, uh, I feel like he's been in movies more and more often these days. And maybe it was something that happened as a result of COVID and not actually being able to work on the stage. And he's also a, a writer too, I believe, but he's mm-hmm. terrific here as, as the the not neighbor, but certainly a, a, a newcomer to the town who is, I guess, writes true crime novels. And he gets very invested in, uh, in the story of this couple and what's happening in the town. And he, I guess he's sort of the audience's conscience in a way, or the conscience of the film as it were. And, and, uh, it's very interesting as he's sort of putting the pieces together and, and, uh, and seeing what happens to him. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so the earlier version, it's actually from 1981, and it's it's known as O Profundis, or Deep Water. And this is a very hard movie to find. I remember when I first found out that there was another version of this story adapted from the Patricia Highsmith book. I was like, oh, I've got to go watch that. And, you know, it took a while. We finally were able to track it down. It stars Isabelle Huppert, a very young Isabelle Huppert, like one of her first roles, and Jean-Louis Trintignant. And this is certainly the youngest I've ever seen Mademoiselle Huppert in anything. And she's really something here. She's She's got all the confidence that she's shown in so many roles since. But it's it's a little raw, you know, obviously. She's, she's younger. And then you've got the much older Trintignant, who is, at that point, I think he was already a legend in French cinema. Yeah, it's funny. Comparing them to their 2022 counterparts, I found De Armas maybe a little more complicated in her, her role. But Trintignant is definitely more complex than yeah. as Vic than Affleck is. But uh, yeah, Stephen, why don't you just tell us, talk a little bit about what the differences, I guess, with the uh, the earlier version. Yeah, well, this is set on the uh, island community of Jersey, which is has an interesting history in and of itself because it's sort of, it's in the channel, one of the, I think one of the Channel Islands between England and France. Mm-hmm, it's, yeah. uh, so it's it's kind of made up of uh, a mix of, of, of French residents and, and, and British or English residents. And uh, so it's got that kind of tight little island, tight community aspect to it, which is is kind of important to how things progress. The, the tightness of the community and, and the degree to which Chitignan's character uh, has embedded himself. He's a perfumier and he's uh, on the, the brink of, of having his work known better elsewhere. It's, he's, he's kind of a cold, passionless kind of guy, which makes it interesting that he'd be into making perfumes. But... He's, he's so much of a technician that he's just a maestro of, of, of scents and smells and, and things like that. So, you know, he, he's definitely got an established reputation. And uh, he has a, the same kind of relationship with his wife, but Isabelle Huppert plays it a lot closer to her chest. She's not necessarily the, the, the passionate spitfire that Anna de Armas is playing uh, playing the character. And her, her Melanie is, is, is a lot more complex. I feel like they're a lot closer than the couple in the, uh, the line remake. And he's, he certainly uh, made the most of his position in the community to carry out various crimes uh, on because of his jealousy and because of being a psychopath. Um, there's already one sort of famous uh, disappearance on the island that as the film goes on, we realize, you know, was, was all him. And I think, you know, when she does have a flirtatious nature and when he does take it out on uh, his victims, it comes suddenly. It's, it's it's pretty shocking. The film is fairly prosaic in its approach. It's it's not shot like a thriller necessarily or like, um, you know, like a like a super tense Hitchcockian suspense drama. And then, then when when things start to happen, it, I, they kind of come out of the blue, even though we know they're they're on their way when it does happen it is pretty shocking and and pretty pretty sudden and uh, i feel that uh the the film may be a little truer to the novel perhaps than the the newer version even though i i do like the updating and the way it's adapted to 
to uh, North American sensibilities, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, this is very much like the differences between, you know, French and American cinema, of course. Oh, yeah. There's the 1980s thing going along with it, too. The fashions and some of the camera work here feel a little more dated, but I thought the performances were pretty strong. You know, I think the French film maybe does a little better to explain the dissatisfaction of the wife character to her in her marriage to to the husband and in that regard maybe the film gives gives her character more agency but then I think there's so. there's more mystery I guess in the later film as, as to what's actually going on I I will say there is a scene by a pool in the older film, just like the newer film, there's a pool that is sort of in the middle of the movie. There's a scene by a pool, except in the older movie, both men are wearing entirely unflattering swimwear. <laughs> and it's so unintentionally hilarious. I just about fell off my chair. Chitignan was in a, a classic romantic drama uh, a few years prior to this, A Man and a Woman. But I, I never really think of him as being a romantic lead because I always think of him as being in uh, films like the Costa Gavras um, political thriller Zed or or the spaghetti western The Great Silence. I mean that's the great thing about him. He's 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 such a great actor. We just he just passed away not too long ago, but but he was so versatile in in the roles that he could play and and here, you know, you 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 believe him as as the husband who can be loving but also you know, a vicious killer. And and there's an ambiguity here which is what you kind of expect from a from a French film and from a French suspense film that you don't know from one moment to the next, you know, are they complicit in e- each other's activities or is she kind of aware? Like there's, there's a, the police inquest early on and, and she, she tells the police that uh, she knows that her husband is responsible for the disappearance of a, of a character before the sort of the story got underway. But then they, she tries to make it look like it's a joke or that, that she's having them on. And, and there's that, that back and forth over the course of the film that keeps us on our toes, keeps us guessing throughout it, which is what makes it so interesting. <laughs> Okay, on today's Lends Me Your Ears, we are talking about erotic thrillers, um, sort of, you know, tipped off or uh, inspired by the Criterion Channel, which has a whole slew of them available right now. But we, we didn't stick to just what's available there. We've, we've gone off and found others, including uh, a film from 1976 called Obsession. Now, if you look up Obsession on, the, on IMDb, there are a bunch of movies called obsession this is the 76 version uh and thankfully steven you have this on uh dvd or blu-ray we were able to watch it yeah arrow films have put out i think the most recent version of it i think my disc might be a british disc but i think you can also get a north american compatible disc from them it's, it's a film that's jumped around from uh distributor to distributor originally a columbia pictures uh production or release by uh, the great bride de palma right um who's for all of his uh hitchcockian uh quirks uh this is probably the most hitchcock-esque film of yeah his. yeah and it was one that i hadn't seen of course a great opportunity to watch more de palma you know makes me happy and this is one that he made with screenwriter and filmmaker paul schrader interesting case where they were both inspired by hitchcock's vertigo and wanted to do something entirely evocative of that classic thriller as as you mentioned and i think this is their only time working together because I, I think they have a, had a disagreement over this particular project in it um, production somewhere along the way. They fell out over it. I think that De Palma made some cuts to Schrader's script, which had a whole extended third act that wasn't ever shot. And, and Schrader was unhappy with the fact that it never, never went there. And yep. weirdly, Bernard Herrmann, back to uh, the composer, backed him up on that yeah. decision, which is, which is kind of amazing. But, you know, Bernard Herrmann's been doing music since, uh, what, Citizen Kane. Right. So, or thereabouts. So, yeah, you, 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 you learn to trust his instinct. I guess. Sure. No, for sure. So here we're back in, uh, interestingly, New Orleans in 1959. Cliff Robertson plays Michael Cortland. He's a real estate developer with his, uh, with John Lithgow, young John Lithgow as his partner. Cortland's wife, played by Jean-Vive Bujold and daughter, they're kidnapped. Uh, by men who demand a ransom. Uh, it all goes wrong with the money being handed over in a briefcase, thrown out of a boat, which, as you pointed out, Stephen, yes. is very much like Kurosawa's High and Low, except in that film was thrown out, uh, a bag was thrown off a train. But it's, yeah, it's it's even right down to the camera angles. It's it's virtually the same uh, sequence. Yeah, so, so clearly De Palma's not only uh, channeling Hitchcock, he's channeling Kurosawa here. So the wife and daughter die in an exploding car that goes into the Mississippi, and their but their bodies are never recovered, which is an important uh, point that <laughs> might 
you know, resolve later on. So we flash forward to 1975. Cortland is in Florence for business, and he meets a young Italian woman, an art historian, who looks exactly like his dead wife looked 16 years before. Naturally, he becomes obsessed with her. Well, he'd have to be with a title-like obsession, and brings her back to New Orleans, intending on making her his wife. Herman's score with the dramatic horn flourishes, it really does bring home that Hitchcock influence. Uh, but this doesn't feel like a pastiche. Like I haven't, I probably haven't seen Vertigo as often as you have, Stephen, but I, I definitely noticed the sort of stylistic indebtedness. But, you know, there's something so 1970s about this film with the sort of soft focus on the lens during oh, yeah. the flashback scenes and the way De Palma moves his camera around. It, it felt it feels very of a time rather than just like trying to do Hitchcock the way Hitchcock did it. Yeah, he's definitely bringing it up to date. And, in, you know, there's there's other things. There's like elements of Notorious in there, especially like the spinning camera work, mm. which was something that, that came into play. Hitchcock used that when he, he couldn't show a couple kissing for there was like some rule under the under the code the the film code that you couldn't show a couple kissing for longer than 10 seconds or something like that so you know he moved the camera around so that you know they're you'd be looking at the back of their heads and you couldn't see their lips so then when a camera came back around they'd be kissing again and you know in your brain you think it's a long continuous kiss even though you couldn't actually show that in a in a film at the time so he repurposes that uh to a to a scene sort of later in the film and it's you know used to to lure it effect i mean there's something operatic about this film and the way that the you know all the emotions are pretty much at at, at full tilt and and the bernard herman score is very expressive and very florid and orchestral and over the top you know, and certainly the plot is as well i find that all the everything is kind of pushed into the red as it were with this film and that's a, a big part of of what i love about it because a lot of the plot elements don't necessarily hold up if you try. Well, if that happened, and then, then this, you know, it's. I'm not going to run down the the bucket list of everything that that doesn't sort of match up in this film. But you know, if you kind of go with it, and especially for Jean Vierre Bujol's kind of dual role, I guess uh, over the course of this film, th there's a lot to like about the film. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And and if you're a fan of, um, you know, the location work is also great along the Mississippi River. There's some great cinematography. And then in uh, in Italy, in Florence, I think we are we, we have some great scenes as well. Yeah, I think it's pretty outrageous overall, quite entertaining. But I would say that the suggestion, almost the depiction, actually, it is there is technically the depiction of incest. Pretty icky, I would yes. say overall. That's a place where the film really goes that you're like, oh, ugh, you know, when you kind of piece it all together. But the as we've been talking about with all of this genre, there the subversive and prov provocations of it are part and parcel of what you you want you go to it for and this one's no different it's just that uh i think it, it, i guess it's just a question of how much you're willing to put up with yeah and and as you mentioned cliff cliff robertson is really the weak link here in this film he's as you've said the director and the star kind of clashed over how to portray this character and and he he's kind of not uh doesn't seem to be really giving 100% here at any point over the course of the film. And you wonder how it would have been with a different male lead. But since that uh, is impossible, you kind of have to go with what there is. And and also, like I don't think it would work with an actor who's necessarily sort of likable. So I guess Cliff works on that level that, you know, he's, he's not necessarily a likable guy oh. anyway. So, you know, his character, who obviously is going through some heavy stuff and, and should be maybe a little more sympathetic, is also once he you know, begins his the second romance of the film, you're kind of like, oh, back away. <laughs> so, you know. Well, there's also the age difference as well. Well, there's right? that too. Yeah. 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 Which I guess was seemed less obvious early on. But anyway, we might be giving stuff away. But if you that's can true. spoil a film that's like 40 years, 40 plus years old. Yeah. And if you've seen Vertigo, then you it's not the same twist, but it's a similar twist. It's a similar twist. Indeed. Indeed. We should talk about another Paul Schrader film. Now, this is one that is available on the Criterion channel right now as part of of its erotic thriller package. This is The Comfort of Strangers. Uh, so now moving moving uh, 15 years ahead or so of obsession into the early 90s, directed by Paul Schrader, written by Ian McEwan and Harold Pinter, of all people. Now, Schrader is a, is a filmmaker who has a few of these erotic thrillers under his belt, if you consider American Gigolo, which we did. We almost yes, watched sure. that. We thought maybe that, that, might, that might count. And... Um, 
cat people as well as it's a you know yeah. I guess a little more supernatural maybe but it's certainly uh, it could be considered amongst these it's a thriller and there's eroticism yeah so. <laughs> so there you go but uh yes and this one's set in Venice uh with a fetching British couple and uh and some other other folks what's what's the story here Stephen well it, it certainly got this incredible pedigree between Schrader directing the Ian McEwan uh, novel I guess he's best known for maybe Atonement which mm-hmm. also turned into uh, an acclaimed film. Uh, this is obviously before that uh, before that uh, film came out, and uh, and and the screenplay by Pinter. I was I was kind of listening for the Pinteresque language, and it is there. And obviously, Christopher Walken is the perfect person to deliver <laughs> deliver dialogue that has awkward pauses in it because he is that is kind of his talk and trade, and also has a great score by Angelo Badalamenti, great cinematographer Dante Spinotti is uh, behind the camera and also uh, closed by Giorgio Armani. Oh, yeah. Uh, so people uh, at the top of their game uh, working on this very creepy and uh, very unsettling story. And it's, uh, it, you know, which is what you kind of expect from Paul Schrader. Uh, that is also his stock and trade. And, and you know, basically, yeah, we have this uh, beautiful couple. They're not married. Colin is played by Rupert Everett. Mary is played by Natasha Richardson. She was married before and has, has a daughter uh, from a previous marriage. And they're on this trip to Venice where uh, they've been there before. So obviously they've been a couple for a while now. They seem a little uncomfortable together. There are certain aspects of their relationship that don't really seem to work. or Slightly bored, maybe. Yeah, I think they're kind of bored with each other. Colin tends to pick on Mary, like criticize her for small things, you know, microaggressions, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Um, They go to a chapel and she's marveling at this painting of St. George and, and he complains that her observations of it are the same as the last time they were in Venice. You know, just... Be real heel. And we uh, we start to see some things they don't. They're being watched by a stranger. Christopher Walken is lurking in the background. And he, it turns out that uh, he's been watching them for a while. And as we'll uh, learn from uh, as the film progresses, you know, we wonder why these people are together in the first place. She says that he's always uh, challenging her intellect. And uh, and she talks about her her childhood uh, terrors of, of being rejected by the group of children that she thought were her friends. And he, 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 you know, he tells her it's a terrible story, but he doesn't seem overly interested or overly sympathetic. So you know, we're lost in the beauty of Venice and they get lost in the streets of Venice as one is wont to do. And in shades of don't look now, and I'm sure it's, uh, it's not uh, unintentional, the comparison to don't look now, the great Nicholas rogue, thriller, which also takes place on the canals and winding streets of, uh, of Venice, the, the weird back alleys and, you know, maze-like uh, layout of the, of, of the streets and alleys. They get lost and uh, run into Robert, who's Christopher Walken's character, who, um, you know, is very inquisitive, seems maybe a little bit more curious about them than you'd uh, think was normal, but I think they're probably a little drunk at this point from dinner and wine, and he takes them to a hole-in-the-wall bistro where they drink more wine because there's no food. And, uh, and he kind of brings them into his world and he's a denizen of, of Venice. He, he has, I guess he has a vaguely Italian accent, but then he talks about how he grew up in London and his wife is Canadian. She's played by Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren, as we soon discover, doing a a very flat kind of Canadian accent. Yeah, it's Uh, not bad. Pretty, pretty, if you had never seen her in anything before, you might, you know, you might buy it, I guess. And he starts spinning all these stories about his childhood, his his father, who was a diplomat, but uh, horribly abusive to him and his many siblings. And, uh, you know, they kind of get drawn into this bizarre relationship with Robert and uh, Caroline, who's uh, the, uh, Helen Mirren's character. And we and it also tests the bounds of, of their marriage and, and or the, sorry, their relationship because they're not married, of course. It's somehow it kind of awakens something in them that, you know, they see this other couple who are kind of an odd couple in a way, but they, they kind of reflect on it and it kind of makes them reassess uh, their relationship. There's uh, some, some intimate scenes between them. And, and this time the difference in this experience in Venice seems to awaken something in them, but there's something sinister going on with uh, Robert and Caroline and they keep, their paths keep intersecting. They keep getting drawn into their orbit and it gets a little darker and a little stranger every time. And, and I don't want to say too much more about it at this point, story-wise, but but it is fascinating how 
you know the circle keeps getting getting smaller until we get to the climax. Oh uh, yeah, has has a pretty uh, pretty shocking effect. Yeah, a hundred percent. I I yeah, I really enjoyed this film. I had seen it once in cinemas when it was first out in the early '90s, and I I remember being really unsettled by it, but I didn't remember too much about it. So watching it again, it's a great role for Walken, as you mentioned in his white suit. He has very, as you could say, old fashioned attitudes. And, uh, you know, in many ways, the story is a love letter to the beauty and mystery of Venice. It's all those narrow, strange passageways. The film really capitalized on the sort of labyrinthine nature of the city and thereby and, and this young couple getting lost in it and, and, you know, the danger that might awake around any corner. And I feel like it's it's a, as a visual metaphor for what's going on with their relationship and their connection to this older couple. It's really spectacular. And there's a scene early on where Colin and Mary, the they first meet Robert, you mentioned, and they, they're talking, he's talking about his childhood and telling this pretty terrible story. And the camera roams through the bar where they're drinking and we see all these young Venetians, their fashionable clothes, their faces. It's quite a moment. I really loved it, though. I'm not sure what to take from it in terms of the storytelling. It's just, it, we're seeing all these other characters that whom we never meet, but we're hearing the story over the, you know, the voiceover Robert talking about his his childhood as we're seeing these other people in the bar. Anyway, I just love that scene, but it's an odd one. Oh yeah, the atmosphere is cranked to ten in this film, and it's great to see. I think I first saw it maybe on VHS, so so it was nice to see this beautifully uh, cleaned up high res version on the Criterion Channel, and uh, it's it's definitely worth your while. And, and Schrader. Is uh, and Pinter do great work here uh, with with the material. Yeah, for sure. And the casting, of course, Rupert Everett is is always been known as being so handsome, and Natasha Richardson, much missed. Yeah, uh, she is. I mean, they're really at their peak beauty and they're shot to be at their most fetching. There's this interesting tension between their sort of sexy scenes, and there are a few of them, and them themselves who in some ways feel quite wholesome. It's like they're both so pretty and kind of unsophisticated, but and they're trying to piece together their relationship and what's going on, and they, they frequently just seem kind of at a loss. And um, there's something about, I guess there's something odd about their chemistry and then that tension between that and their looks, which I think, I mean, they're just so gorgeous to look at. It's definitely, Comfort of Strangers is a weird movie. I, I still don't know if I entirely understand it, but I do appreciate that that level of dread that is is like seeped into it and just increases and increases until that finale, which kind of flattens you. Yeah, we're so used to seeing Walken just playing quirky characters these days that it's it's nice to be reminded of when he could play super menacing characters absolutely which uh you know became was it was his stock in trade in films like this and even in the the musical pennies from heaven where he oh, plays yeah. a kind of kind of a lothario bad guy with a great dance number he could really uh really give you the willies and he certainly yeah. does here yeah prophecy king, yes. of new, king of new york he's oh, terrifying I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lens of Your Ears and our look at some erotic thrillers, many of which are hosted by the Criterion Channel, which is uh, hosting a spate of them uh, this month. And uh, I imagine they'll be available to watch uh, uh, after uh, April is done. A lot of those titles are, are available for weeks afterward, but uh, but they're certainly being featured now in, in a major way. And I, I guess it's uh, an interesting way to look at how our kind of sexual obsessions and cinematic obsessions overlap and and uh, create for some some interesting viewing in a way that uh, you know we don't really see so much uh, these days. Uh, certainly, uh, the film we started off with, Deep Water, uh, is a nice kind of return to that era when you can remind yourself it's only a movie, it's only a movie, and that that uh, we can uh, enjoy watching characters doing bad things. And uh, and Dream Dream Lover is uh, is very much in that mold from uh, 1993, I believe. And uh, directed by Nicholas Kazan, the uh, the son of Ilya Kazan, 
uh, and the father of Zoe Kazan, the the actor. So this is his only directorial outing. Uh, he's known primarily for uh, for screenwriting, but uh, here he took a stab at at directing a film based on his own script. And of course, it wouldn't be an erotic thriller uh, show without uh, the appearance of James Spader. And here we have him in uh, in full blossom. Right? <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. At his peak, in some argue <laughs> might, might argue. Um, yeah, interesting. Nicholas Kazan, right? I like. I, I went and looked at some of his other films. He's he wrote the screenplay for At Close Range, which is a great thriller, late 80s thriller with uh, Sean Penn and Christopher Walken, uh, Reversal of Fortune. And he also wrote Matilda of all. Yeah. Films. Um, Danny DeVito version. Uh, yes. There you go. Um, now, before we get into the plot, can we just talk for a second around the tr- one of the tragedies of American cinema? The fact that James Spader lost his hair. <laughs> over the years i mean i mean his hair should be first in the call sheet it is so it's so perfect and it was part so much a part of his image uh, as the number one douchebag in Hollywood back in the late 80s and early 90s. So many movies from that era. And I'm going to just mention a few of them. Pretty in Pink, Lesson Zero, Wall Street, The Rachel Papers, Storyville, Bob Roberts, Secretary. I mean, if it wasn't for Sex, Lies, and Videotape and Stargate, I don't know if he ever would have escaped that image of like, yeah. you know, the kind of like guy you just can't trust. Um, if The Blacklist is the only place you know James Spader from, you owe it to yourself to go out and check out his earlier work and his astonishing head of hair. Yeah, sex lies in videotape at the very least. Oh yeah, for sure. He's amazing in that. And I'm not saying that he isn't a great actor. He absolutely is, but he just had a niche and he kept getting the roles where he played these guys that you couldn't trust. In this film, you know, he's actually uh, sort of, I guess, the protagonist. I mean, he's he's definitely uh, maybe a nicer guy. But uh, I also, by the way, on this film, want to draw viewers' attention to Maidchen Amick's eyebrows. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. <laughs> yes. But her eyebrows are works of art. They are perfectly arched. I mean, it's. I mean, she's stunning overall. Both of these actors are beautiful to look at, but those eyebrows are really something. Um, yeah. So anyway, this film is quite interesting. Dream lover, uh, not so much a thriller as a drama. Maybe there's thriller as creeps into it as we go along. It's it pretty gothic. Yeah, it does. The ga- a dash of Hitchcock certainly is another, and you know, definitely a, a an inspiration here. Spader plays Ray. He's a yuppie architect and a divorcee. Uh, we meet him just as his first divorce is being finalized, and you know, there's there's it's. It's not um, acrimonious. It might have started that way, but there's much forgiveness between him and his ex-wife, and they're kind of sad. And For a second, you're wondering if maybe this is a four weddings and a funeral styled rom-com where the good-looking guys, pals, all try to set him up, uh, especially his obnoxious buddy, Norman, played by Larry Miller. He meets, uh, Ray meets Lena, played by Amick. Uh, she's uh, she's at an art gallery, and then he runs into her again the following evening at the grocery store. Uh, soon they are naked, which is pretty hot, and then they're married with a couple of kids who barely seem to impact their lives at all. Like, <laughs> yeah. the kids are hardly on screen. You don't spend a lot of time with the kids. No, no. And everything seems great until Ray starts to get curious about Lena's past, uh, which she's done her best to leave behind because none of her family are at the wedding, and she seems to have, like, one friend showing up. And it, it suggests that she might have changed her name. And he goes looking through her purse, and then it's one of those movies, it becomes one of those movies about trust and about secrets. He gets paranoid, I think, far beyond the point where he, you know, rationally should. But then the movie, I would say, eventually proves his suspicions, I think, without saying too much more. At this point, it feels a bit like the movie is exploring all this male anxiety around, you know, powerful women. And it's a there's a pretty good argument that some of this is badly misogynistic stuff, though I suppose no more than any noir where the femme fatale connives to betray the the leading man. Uh, Lena suddenly picks up a smoking habit and then has him <laughs> committed uh, later on in the movie. Anyway, you know, I won't say any more than that, but uh, there is a lot to enjoy in Dream Lover, and I think it's mostly in the performances between the two leads. Though I would not say it's in the sets. Rarely have I seen a Hollywood movie where the interiors look more like they were built in a carp shop. Um, Ray's (laughs) office 
where you look out the window, the buildings are so obviously fake. And then there's, and that's saying something even for the 1990s when a lot of things didn't look great, cutting corners and doing genre on the cheap during a recession. You know, of course, I recognize that in this era of digital supremacy, some of these movies, it was never expected that they would look as sharp as they do now. And we're seeing a lot of the, the rough edges of them in these, in these screenings. Yeah. I don't know what kind of, if this had any theatrical presence at all like i like i used to see the vhs tape for this on the shelf all the time uh back in the 90s and never was never inspired to pick it up as much as i loved uh madchen amic from uh, from twin peaks which sure. is, is where most people know her from yeah, but, yeah. uh that should have been incentive enough but uh i'm glad i got to catch up with it now because it just seems like such a prototypical film of of this genre and of this period and and i had a blast with it for, um you know, from the convolutions of the plot, which seem, uh, you know, when, when we learn that what Lena's up to, it just seems way more complicated than it needs to be. Absolutely. You know, the she's going to all these different lengths when she pretty much achieves what she was after in the first place. But but then, you know, it has to get pushed to this other level. And uh, you're kind of like, why? <laughs> and and just trying to get inside the head of her character is a, is enough of a treat over the course of this film, especially when, when it gets into the, the final phase of her, of her plan to, to get, uh, to get Spader's character into a, into a, uh, you know, a mental hospital. And, and it, it's, uh, it's, it's a real treat to watch all that unfold. I don't want to say too much more about it, but you know, the, the film has to really jump through some hoops to get us there. And, uh, yeah, don't read any into the IMDb spoiler goofs, um, entries for this film because the, it, it'll just ruin the the viewing experience i think yeah yeah no it's i i really enjoyed the film and i think it's surprising to me that uh you know more of those those very fetching and uh uh, uh i guess you know starlets if you want to use that term uh from twin peaks weren't bigger stars because even though i think many of them did go on to other work um you know they were all so good and this a film like this proves that that uh, they definitely had a lot uh, going for them, but uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's a fun one to go back and watch in some respects. That's a Dream Lover on the Criterion Channel right now. We also watched Criminal Passion from 1994. You know, a lot not a lot of these erotic thrillers are directed by women, but we did find this one. Criminal Passion is directed by Donna Deitch, probably best known for having directed the cult classic Desert Hearts. Yes. Which I think was pretty groundbreaking at the time in the depiction of romance between two women. She's been more recently directing television movies and series, and this stars Joan Severance, who was, I think, kind of a big deal in the 1990s in film and television. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So- she was a big star and, and, you know, was, was often in a lot of action films and that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, she's still working. She's still, she's done a lot of series television and a lot of cable-y kind of stuff. So we haven't seen her on the big screen in a while, but, uh, and I, I wouldn't exactly say that this was a big screen kind of movie. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting. It does have all the hallmarks of being a directive video kind of title, which is sort of surprising because Desert Hearts was a big hit uh, in the mid '80s, uh, and you know it played at Wormwoods here in Halifax. It, it certainly had a, a good run in the, I guess, into in the the rep house kind of circuit. But but here we are, almost a decade later, and she's directing this uh, with a, with a much lower budget. It certainly doesn't have that kind of, you know, the visual splendor of the the sort of prairie towns of uh, of, of Desert Hearts. It's it's more of a kind of claustrophobic. Uh, confined to sets in a couple of a uh, couple of locations kind of feel but but uh but at its core you've got Joan Severance as a cop Melanie Hudson uh you know it starts off very noiry but it's it's great in that she's the cop and it's kind of there's this great role reversal of her doing all the noir dialogue and driving the restless streets with her inner monologue going full tilt and and uh and so that kind of sets the the pace for the film um as uh, as as she resolves to to get to the bottom of a uh, of the murder of a friend of hers, a ballet dancer who's brutally killed in the opening scenes of of the film, and it turns out to be the work of a serial killer. We uh, we we watch her kind of get on the on the case of a, of a kind of a, a spoiled rich dude, the son of a senator. He's got the most 1990s movie name ever, Connor Ashcroft. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Connor Ashcroft, played by John Allen Nelson, who is yeah. also the screenwriter, and ah. which uh, which is maybe or one of the screenwriters. There's three uh, 
um, there's, there's a couple of names attached. Max Strom is, is another uh, writer uh, attached to this film. But but I think John Allen Nelson maybe was the, the primary force behind the, the script for this film. And, uh, and it kind of shows. I think he's maybe way too in love with himself. <laughs> And, uh, and, but he's their number one suspect. And of course, while she's investigating him, she also becomes attracted to him. And, and, uh, you know, the, over the course of the investigation, they're kind of flirting and, and then, um, Nelson is, he's just this kind of smug a-hole. It's, uh, it's hard to see the attraction really, but, uh, but they get involved. And of course that brings into conflicts at, uh, back at the station house where, uh, you know, her superiors are, are, are don't like how the case is progressing and don't like this weird connection between her and Ashcroft. And he's the kind of guy like she she goes over to his house to to interview him regarding the murder or his association with the, the ballet dancer. And he pulls out this book called the what was it the the art of erotic ecstasy and kind of waves it at her like to see if she expresses any interest. And in the meantime, we've got her some drama with her partners uh, back in the police force who uh, are kind of an interesting mix of characters. We've we, one is like kind of the homophobic jerk. And then we've got another cop who's, who's gay and a little more sympathetic. And, and uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's all centered on Joan Severance as this woman trying to get by in a man's world on her own terms. But she also has this great wardrobe of suits and wears ties and suspenders. It's, it's kind of like this, the film noir hard boiled version of Annie Hall. And uh, you know, when, when when we eventually get to the the big sort of climax, as it were, towards the end of the film, and that there there aren't any real surprises in this movie. It's all it's all basically watching her navigate this this path uh, and uh, you know maintaining her independence and keeping her head uh, about her while all this uh, stuff is going down. And 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 uh, you know I kind of enjoyed it on that level. It, it feels like a film, you know, maybe it was kind of towards the end of the erotic thriller cycle of the of the nineties or the directed video movie kind of cycle, but I enjoyed it for uh, it, it's kind of high camp value to a certain degree. And, and for the way it kind of exploits a lot of the kind of noir cliches along the way. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I, it, it, the script is outrageous as you say, but I like that it had, I like the character notes. I like the, uh, the, the cop who's in the closet, not sure he wants to come out to the whole police station. Uh, and then there's of course another cop who's got a chronic sort of sexist commentary. Uh, and, uh, and Rachel Ticotten or Ticotten, uh, from total recall shows up as another suspect. So, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot to, uh, to enjoy here. It is silly in places, but it's also, uh, there's also a lot of thought about where the camera is going. It's over the top. The full-on uh, 90s fashions are crazy yeah. from the hair to the oversized blazers, high-waisted pants, and the suspenders. And Hudson wears an impressive pair of wingtips, I noticed. Uh, oh, and the early Danny Trejo cameo. Yes, that was a great to see. Yeah, yeah. Also, Melanie has a parrot. So, you know, big, big thumbs up for me for the, the parrot presence. <laughs> Well, that wraps up our look at erotic fillers on this week's Lens Me Your Ears. Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any thoughts, you can always contact us via our Twitter account or our Facebook page. And you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. I'm on Twitter. You can find me by my blog name, Flaw in the Iris. Thanks, as always, to CKDU for the use of the studio facilities and the Village Soundcast Network, which puts the finishing touches on the show and makes it sound so good. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.